Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. About 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Lucy Cooper, broadcasting from Bindle and Woolgaroo Kabar land in Townsville. Scientists know asparagopsis, a seaweed additive, reduces methane in cows, but does it affect the taste when the meat hits our plates? And why has the EU free trade discussions crumbled over feta and prosecco, plus tearless onions? They're not as pungent. They don't irritate the eyes, but they still have the great flavour of onions, just a little bit sweeter. But first, Australians waste around 7.6 million tonnes of food every year, which means you're wasting 312 kilograms individually. To put that in perspective, that's around one in five shopping bags chucked in the bin or per household, about $2,000 to $2,500 wasted. And it's not just the end product that goes in the bin, but... Think of all of the effort fertilising, irrigating and transporting the food to the supermarket. CEO and founder of Oz Harvest, Ronnie Khan, says throwing out one burger with the meat, bread and salads wastes the equivalent amount of water as running a shower for 90 minutes. More than $36.5 billion is what food waste is costing all of us here in Australia. The research shows us that prior to this cost of living crisis, what we know is that people were really more wasteful. The research showed us that probably one in five shopping bags went to waste. And what it tells us is that it's costing every household around somewhere between two and $3,000 a year. Now that is, I mean, in good times, that's a holiday, but in right now, That is food on our table, that is lights, energy, fuel in our gas tanks. It's an extraordinary amount. In your opinion, why is there so much food waste in this country? Well, I think we've kind of lost the value of food. We have supermarkets, we have shops available 24-7. We don't really think about what it costs us to produce that food. The energy, the labour, the fuel all the embedded costs. So somehow we might take a bite of an apple and say this isn't good and we throw it away. And it's not really a 60 cent apple or a dollar apple, but it's probably more like a $4 apple. And I just think that we have lost that that sense of awareness around food. Having said that though, with the things that we're seeing currently, there is such a greater awareness around the cost of food, that I'm hoping that that's going to shift. As you mentioned, it's pretty easy to see a pile of food wasted in the food court or thrown out in the bin. But with that back-end supply chain you were just talking about, a pretty uh, astonishing statement that I read today, that throwing away one burger wastes the same amount of water as a 90-minute shower. Yeah, I mean, that is it is shocking and it is so confronting when you actually think about it like that. And that's the issue, that every time we waste something, 
we're wasting much more. We're wasting all that energy fuel labor that's embedded. And yeah, if people were aware that the comparison between wasting a burger and 90 minutes of water, 25% of our global greenhouse emissions are lost through food waste. And so that is a huge number. And we as consumers actually can shift and change that. That's the exciting thing. And it's not just consumers who are to blame for this, though. What role do the big supermarkets play here, especially when it comes down to certain specifications that they want for fruit and vegetables? The truth is, obviously, supermarkets could do better. But, you know, supermarkets work with where our feet go. And so we must take some responsibility as well. All the time that we are willing to buy cherries that are not in season or fruit and vegetables that are not in season and only choose the beautiful ones and nothing with a freckle, then we are actually giving the guidance to the supermarket as to what should be on their shelves. So it, it, it really is give and take. We've seen in the past few years that the supermarkets have rebranded some of their ugly or imperfect fruit and veggies and put a slight discount on them. Has that helped solve the problem at all? Yeah, we love this notion of ugly and imperfect range because we know that people, certainly at this time with the crisis as it is, are definitely heading to that because supermarkets are discounting it. But I'm always fascinated because it costs exactly the same to grow an ugly potato as it does to grow a beautiful one. So the fact that we're discounting it is really a little, it's false economy, but it's good for us right now. And it is good because it's enabling people to be aware and choose that. And hopefully that is a habit that stays. CEO and founder of Oz Harvest, Ronnie Kahn, speaking with Jane McNaughton. This week, Meat and Livestock Australia, an independent organisation which invests in research and marketing on behalf of red meat and livestock producers, published results on a world-first feedlot trial. The trial saw over 300 days 80 Wagyu cattle fed asparagopsis, a methane-reducing seaweed additive. The purpose of the study was to find out whether the asparagopsis additive changed the flavour of Wagyu steak, a very important factor if they ever want to put this meat on supermarket shelves. Amy Phillips reported on the findings. With the largest national herd of Wagyu cattle, it made sense that the Australian agricultural company was interested in reducing its methane footprint. So it enlisted the help of the University of New England to run an internationally significant feedlot trial. So this research is done at UNE's Toowoomba feedlot and it's a commercialised research feedlot. So we had eight pens of AACO's F1 Wagyu cattle. Half of them were fed the asparagopsis oil in the normal AACO diet and the other half were just fed the normal AACO grower. That's UNE's Associate Professor of Livestock Production, Fran Cowley, who oversaw the trial where the cattle were fed for nearly 300 days. She says methane emissions were able to be captured for each individual beast, but the results were surprisingly low. So what we found is that methane was reduced by 28% in terms of daily methane production in this trial. Um, that's 
uh, qu quite different to some other research that we've been doing um, using this very same product in short-fed diets. Uh, so we did some research funded by MLA and Future Feed last year in our um, respiration chambers, which I considered the gold standard for measuring methane production. And that found uh, the stragopsis oil was able to reduce methane by 99%, depending on the dose. This trial fed the sparagopsis oil at uh, to Wagyu cattle, which are on a, a different diet from our short-fed uh, grain-finished cattle. And it also fed it at a much lower inclusion rate as well. And um, we were pleased to find that in, in field conditions, we were still able to get that nearly 30% reduction in daily methane production. Um, really, the thing that was most important to AACO being long-fed Wagyu's is the carcass quality, and so we found no impact at all on um, any kind of Marcus, uh, carcass grading traits, uh, marbling, or um, eat, eat, eating quality attributes. So that was a real tick for the product, um, particularly for a high-quality uh, beef market such as um, where these carcasses are destined. Fran Cowley, Associate Professor of Livestock Production with UNE, and the research is now published on the MLA website. One question remains, though. Can you taste sustainability? Did the asparagopsis additive change the flavour of the Wagyu steak? That's where Principal Research Fellow at the University of Queensland, Dr Heather Smythe, and her team of sensory panellists became involved. I'm not interested in whether or not they like it. I'm interested in them helping me develop profiles of products. And they taste all sorts of products from, from plant-based. We do a lot of plant burgers at the moment, all the way through to Wagyu, um, uh, tropical fruits and everything in between, wine and chocolate and coffee, you name it. Um, but particularly, they're very good at texture and they're very good at beef. We've done a fair bit of tasting the last few years um, for the beef industry. So in this project, the statistics showed that there was no difference for any of those sensory traits um, based on the diet. So the diet had no impact on the quality whatsoever. But Dr Smythe, I understand it's not the first time you've been involved with, with taste testing AA Company's beef. We did a whole lot of different cuts of, of the West Home um, brand, the AA co-branded Wagyu, and we did a whole range of different marbling levels. So we know exactly what property should be there. We have a benchmark for what the quality of that product is supposed to be. So while this might have been underwhelming for, let's say, your, your group of taste testers with their acute uh, senses, was industry hugely relieved that the taste of beef had not changed despite this additive? Yes, that the industry were relieved. I had a group of the of the company come and sit with us before we did the train tastings and uh, with the panel, and uh, we tasted all of that product together in a blind benchtop test. And uh, there was a big sigh of relief. There was, you know, really, really, everyone was happy. They were also uh, obviously able to think about adopting this diet is not going to to completely destroy our brand. Dr. Heather Smythe, Principal Research Fellow with the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at the University of Queensland. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. This week, Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell travelled to Brussels in an attempt to break the deadlock on a European Union free trade agreement. But Australia and the EU have failed to resolve the five-year-long negotiations 
on a planned free trade agreement worth almost $100 billion. Joining me to discuss what has unfolded this past week and what it means for us as consumers is ABC's National Regional Affairs reporter, Jane Norman. Jane, the Trade Minister had hoped to seal the lucrative deal by mid-year, but this has not come to fruition. Did he provide a reason for why it hasn't happened? Well, Lucy, I think the view from the Trade Minister, the view from the Australian side is no deal is better than a dud deal. And it is a dud deal that the Australian side believes the EU has so far put on the table. These talks have been going on for now five years, as you mentioned, and they're really reaching the pointy end. Heaps of issues have been resolved But there are two sticking points that the two sides just cannot seem to reach a compromise on or an agreement on. The most famous, well, the the one that grabs the headlines, I guess, is the geographical indications. This is uh, the European Union wanting Australian producers to give up the naming rights to hundreds of products. And the second sticking point, which arguably is probably a bit bigger, is the issue of market access. Australia wants much greater access to what is a very protected European market for beef, sheep meat, sugar and dairy products. The EU has brought its own firepower to the table, threatening to revoke naming rights for some pretty iconic products. What are those products and what is their claim to those naming rights? So there are hundreds of names that the European Union wants to protect. A lot of them are not controversial, but there are about a dozen that are, and they're mainly related to the dairy and winemaking industries. Names like Prosecco, uh, a type of grape, uh, and then you have a whole bunch of cheeses like Parmesan, mozzarella and feta. Now, the whole idea of geographical indications is that they're meant to protect the naming rights of distinctive products from regions. The most famous, of course, is champagne. But... Uh, For many of these products, producers argue they're really generic, like feta, for example, um, we know is, you know, a a mix of goats or sheep's milk to make it. But um, it's not like there's another sort of obvious name and there's not like a place called feta. So that's the kind of complication around this. And the government has tried to make a sort of emotional argument that Australia being a migrant nation has so many European migrants who have moved to Australia, brought their culture, brought their food. And so there's kind of this deep cultural connection to these very names when they're bringing the produce over here. And on all of that and the industry's take, here is New South Wales wine president Mark Bourne's take on the situation if Prosecco had to be renamed. To be able to have to go back to square one and rename the variety, start the marketing and branding of that style of wine again, would be a huge impost and put a large handbrake on that variety and the Australian wine industry. The Australian wine industry and particularly New South Wales wine industry, I think is supportive of the Australian government's stance on rejecting this illegitimate GI claim for Prosecco. Uh, we're supportive of negotiating a better deal for all Australian farmers in the EU. And of course, we're supportive of the government in continuing the trade negotiations uh, going forward. Jane, from the people that you've spoken to, is your understanding that this is a sentiment felt by, you know, the wine and cheese industries in terms of appreciating that the trade minister hasn't essentially jumped the gun on this deal? Very much so. I think that at this stage, the dairy and the wine industries are the two sectors that are looking very closely at what is agreed to here. Of course, there is a chance at the end of the day that the Australian side decides to negotiate and compromise on this. So I'm totally speculating here, but I mean, um, you couldn't rule out that there might be a situation where the EU decides 
we can call it Australian Parmesan or Australian Feta or Australian Prosecco or whatever. So there are a whole bunch of options that are on the table, but at this stage, the government isn't even publicly considering any other options, just very much holding firm um, on the EU demands for us to give up hundreds of, uh, the right to use hundreds of names. Jane Norman, ABC's National Regional Affairs reporter, thank you. Thank you. From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio. In that story, we heard from the New South Wales wine president, Mark Bourne, who welcomed the hard line taken by Australian trade negotiators on an EU trade deal. But that isn't the only wine story making headlines this week. Voluntary administrators will move to sell a prominent regional New South Wales winery that has been in business for more than 40 years. The company's woes date back to the 2019-2020 bushfire season when 80% of stock from its main grape suppliers were left unmarketable from the smoke taint. Then the COVID-19 pandemic affected the tourist trade and Chinese tariffs on Australian wine also hit the company's finances hard. Tina Quinn has more. For close to four decades, Cassegrain Wines has been a prominent force in the New South Wales winemaking industry. Based just south of Port Macquarie, the family-run business headed up by managing director John Cassegrain is the largest operation of its kind on the state's mid-north coast. We cleared the land in 1980, planted the first vineyard in 1981, uh, had our first vintage here in 1983 in a little tin shed just across the road, and we opened the winery in December 1985. So coming up close to 40 years that you've, that you've had a, a cellar door in this location, uh, and over 40 years now since you, you planted those first grapes, th- these must have been very difficult decisions that you've had to make. Yeah, no, it's... It, it's uh... Everything we've done is, or anything I've done in my life has been for this, this business. So, yeah, it's pretty tough. Last month, John had to make the very difficult decision of filing for voluntary administration, appointing insolvency firm Shaw Gidley. He says the company had faced enormous headwinds brought about by the pandemic, natural disasters, and the 200% tariffs imposed by the Chinese government on Australian wine. Our sales are recovering, but we're still a long way short to where we were pre-COVID, pre-bushfires. And particularly happens with the domestic economy. Our electricity bills, for example, has increased 30% in the last 12 months. And you know, there's talk about recession, it's getting tough. So we're just running out of energy. And I thought, look, it's, we really do need a restructure because we can't afford another, another hit. Last week, Shaw Gidley released a 34-page report into their financial assessment of the business. The firm's director, Ben Ismay, says it recommends that Cassegrain Wines be wound up and sold. The director was not able to put together a proposal that provided for a suitable return to the creditors that would be acceptable to the creditors and that we would be in a position to recommend. So... Uh, Given that the company is insolvent, the only other outcome that is possible after the voluntary administration process concludes is that it uh, be wound up uh, into a liquidation process, hopefully with the sale of the business as a going concern. 
Casa Grain Wines no longer grows grapes on site, but instead purchases the fruit from other vineyards from across the state and the ACT. Their winemaking team, headed up by John's son Alex Cassegrain, then produces the wine on site. While John accepts that the business will now have to be put on the market, he says he's trying to create a syndicate of investors who would be willing to purchase Cassegrain wines so it could continue to operate. The aim is to retain the the, the business. Unfortunately, the Cassegrain family's uh, shareholdings in the current business will be let go. And then Alex and Philip Cassegrain, my, my children, are really keen on c- continuing on and they'll work in with other potential investors to carry on with the business. It means that the Cassegrain family loses equity in the winery, but it'll be a much stronger financial structure going forward. And your family's history in the winemaking business goes back many generations and and across the world, doesn't it? It does, yeah, back, back, back to France and uh, my parents came here in the in the 50s. We can trace our winemaking back to 1643 in France. Um, yeah, it's, it's in our blood. The Expressions of Interest campaign for Cassegrain Wines will commence in the coming weeks. Tina Quinn with that report. This week, the nation's ag ministers met in Perth to discuss a number of issues facing industry, one of which is the decision to phase out battery eggs. They are the eggs produced by hens which are kept in battery cages. The ministers all endorsed an updated version of the Australian Animal Welfare Standards and Guidelines for Poultry, but failed to provide a clear time frame to Australia's egg producers on when the phasing out would occur. Megan Hughes has this story. The ministers have endorsed an updated version of the Australian Animal Welfare Standards and Guidelines for Poultry. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says this is the first time they've had a national agreement about these new standards. But while the ministers have endorsed 2036 as the date to phase out battery cages, it's been left up to each state and territory government to decide the time frame. We understand that this has got to be dealt with differently in different states and states and territories will have the flexibility uh, to set their own time frames within those standards as to when uh, their individual state uh, will, will progress this. Some will move faster than others, some will move slower than others and it'll all be done in, in consultation with the relevant industry. Peak Industry Group Egg Farmers Australia Chief Executive Melinda Hashimoto is concerned over the lack of clarity. Well, look, certainly eggs cross borders and so that's why the industry had hoped that there would be some harmonisation, which was the whole aim of the standards and guidelines process, so that states essentially were all working to the same standards at the same time. So it's disappointing that that has not happened um, and that now it will be sent back to states and territories to deal with after all this time. Caged eggs make up about 50% of the nation's total egg production, which includes the boxed egg industry that supplies bakeries, hotel chains, cruise liners and the wider hospitality industry. The industry has expressed concern that the endorsed 2036 date will lead to a rise in price caused by an egg shortage, similar to what happened in New Zealand, where eggs in supermarkets jumped more than 50% in price. But Senator Watt says it's unlikely. We've actually obtained modelling 
in the process of coming up with these standards, which shows that even as a result of these changed standards, the average egg consumer will be paying about $1.51 more per year. We're not talking about $15 uh, boxes of eggs. Those figures have no credibility and the politicians who are out there sprouting them are just trying to scare people. Ms Hashimoto says there needs to be consultation with industry before phase-out dates are locked in. State farming organisations will need to work with their um, individual state minister um, to work through this situation that's been, that's been decided. And are you calling for compensation for farmers? Well, look, certainly that's always been our position was that if the government picked a time earlier than uh, 2046 that we would expect that there would be consideration of exit packages for those farmers that can't expand um, and also structural adjustment packages for those farmers that wish to make the transition to another egg production system. When questioned about compensation, Senator Watts says they'll work with industry. He also provided clarity around the types of cages that will be phased out. It's what are known in the industry as conventional cages or what might be known by lay people as battery hens or battery cages. These standards will allow for the continued use of cages in poultry farming and egg farming, um, but they won't be the kind of cages that we're all used to seeing on TV in years gone by. Of course, you know, there are other methods, free range and other things, and that is increasingly happening. We're actually at a point in Australia where it's only about 30% of, caged, of, of eggs that are bought in supermarkets are produced using those conventional cages. So the market is moving and government is catching up. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt ending that report from Megan Hughes. Don't you hate having to cry over onions every time you cut them up? Well, this could now be a thing of the past as a new onion variety launched this week and it promises to be tearless. Grown in South Australia, Woolworths is selling the new variety in New South Wales and Victoria with quite the self-explanatory name, Happy Chop Onions. Woolworths General Manager of Fruit and Veg, Paul Turner, explains what makes the onions tearless. Well, Happy Chop Tearless Onions is an onion that's been crossbred over the last 30 years. Normally in an onion, you have enzymes and naturally occurring chemicals that really give off that pungent smell, but also what we call volatile compounds that irritate the eyes when you cut them, which is the experience a lot of people have, some more severe than others. And what the tearless onions do is they have very few of those volatile compounds in them and they actually decrease over time as well. So they're not as pungent, they don't irritate the eyes, but they still have the great flavour of onions, just a little bit sweeter. I understand this concept's actually been developed since the 80s. It's taken a a fair while to, to come to fruition. I know they are sold overseas as well. Why has it taken so long to develop a, a tearless onion? Well, it's done through naturally occurring crossbreeding, which takes a significant amount of time. These types of onions, the characteristics that we're talking about, have occurred in crops naturally. And then it's about selection and crossbreeding to get to the right seeding process so that you can replicate that consistently. How do they taste? Because from looking around uh, at some of the, the commentary around it, they really are quite a lot more mild than, say, the traditional onion. Yeah, they would appear to be milder when you taste them. And they're also a little bit sweeter than your regular onion. And that's just because of those compounds that I was talking about that are a little bit less in this onion. But the cooking flavours are very much the same. How much demand is there for this? Has Woolworths taken on um, a lot of research saying that people are, are wanting this? Well, it's one of those things where we think that there's a problem there we might be able to help solve for people. 
And to answer the question on demand, we've, we'll find out in the next few days because we've only got it through from July to September because we've got a very small crop. And that's one of the things we're doing is testing to understand the customer feedback on that and the customer uptake so that we can plan for the future and make sure that we can bring that as part of our regular offer for customers in all of our stores. They've been marketed overseas for a little bit longer than they have been in Australia, obviously, if you're just launching them now. What's the uptake been like over there? It's been uh, pretty pretty good and growing, but um, probably not to the same degree that, that we had hoped for. Um, that we're seeing from other countries. So hopefully it's something that will resonate with Australian customers and, and hopefully we can bring that to market and solve for one of the problems that people have been having in their kitchens for quite some time. Anyone who's cut up onions probably has a tip or a trick for not crying while cutting them up. My husband wears goggles. I just hold some water in my mouth. Do you have any tips? <laughs> well, I, I, mouth breathing is one of them, Cassie. That's about the only <laughs> thing that's ever worked for me, just not breathing through the nose, but I'm sure the goggles would help as well. When it comes to growing these onions, I know you're on the, the supply side rather than the um, the growing side of things, but are they a pretty similar onion to grow to, to others that we're more familiar with? Yeah, they are very similar. They're grown with the same techniques as regular onions. I don't believe they're being sold in and South Australia, though. They're being grown here, but they're not actually being sold here. That's right. We've got a very limited crop and the onion seed takes quite a while to grow. So we're testing them in two states to get an understanding, as I said, of customer uptake. So we know what we need to partner with our growers to grow in the next coming season so that we can supply them into more states. Woolworths General Manager of Fruit and Veg, Paul Turner, speaking to Cassie Huff. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm Lucy Cooper and you can find more rural stories online at abc.net.au slash rural. And you can catch up on more rural content like the Country Hour on the ABC Listen app.